This week on Wealth Track, climate change investing with legendary value investor Jeremy Grantham. How he is investing in what he calls the race of our lives. We're trying to recognize what climate change will mean to the global economy. Everything changes if you have to decarbonize the entire world. And we would like to understand the advantages, the disadvantages, the opportunities, the problems, and understand it a little quicker and more completely than other people. Part two of our rare interview with great investor Jeremy Grantham. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, ClearBridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. When legendary value investor Jeremy Grantham turned 80, he made two resolutions. One, to be prepared to write a check up to the limits of your ability. And two, to say what you think you should say to everybody. He is following through on both commitments. He is saying what he thinks he should say to everybody, including us, to our benefit, In the first of our two-part interview last week, Grantham warned we are in a bubble of epic proportions in the U.S. stock markets, bond market, and global real estate and commodity markets. That interview is available on WealthTrack.com. Back to his resolutions. He is writing the checks. He and his wife have pledged approximately 98% of their $1 billion-plus fortune to the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, a family foundation they founded in 1997, whose mission is to protect and conserve the natural environment. In recent years, a primary focus has been to fight climate change through advocacy, research, and investments in green technology innovation. While the foundation is investing heavily in early-stage green venture capital companies, Grantham's firm GMO launched a climate change fund in 2017, which invests in publicly traded companies. The now $700 million-plus fund has beaten its benchmark handily since inception, and has earned a Morningstar four-star rating. Individual investors can access the fund through financial advisors, including Fidelity and Schwab. Grantham, of course, is the co-founder of GMO, a global investment management firm he started in 1977 that now has about $67 billion under management. His current title is long-term investment strategist, having handed over the responsibilities of chief investment strategist several years ago. I began the interview by asking Grantham about his views on climate change and why he calls it the race of our lives. First of all, I think that's the most convenient and honest framing of the issue, that the damage has escalated and the progress in technology has escalated, both of them far beyond what was hoped for or feared 20 years Mm -hmm. ago. So that the warming of the ocean in the last 20 years is three times what it was in the prior 40 years. The melting of the ice caps, the melting of the glaciers, is two or three times what it was 40 years ago. The uh, heating of the air, even, 
what you might call the bottom line, the second half of the 20th century was just over twice the first half. And by the end of it and, and this century, it's another 50% increment. So we're going up by bigger and bigger jumps, which should make the hair on the back of your neck bristle. It, it's a terrible right. condition to be accelerating into uh, trouble. And the only good news, and hence the race, is that no one thought that wind and solar, uh, in half the world, by the way, today, is cheaper than, than running an existing coal plant utility. You, That's you could, a big change. You could give them a coal plant, and right. uh, they still couldn't operate it as cheaply as half the world can build a brand new wind farm or solar farm. These are amazing shifts. And uh, solar in 20 years is probably down to 5%, and wind in 20 years is probably down to 10 or 15% of what it was. And storage, which is the third and absolutely vital component, has gone from $1,000 a kilowatt hour uh, to 100 today in 11 years. And the target is pretty clear for another halving with solid state lithium batteries. And because it uses less material, at scale, it can really hope uh, to reach uh, $50. And at $50, it is cheaper to build uh, than a diesel or gasoline equivalent, uh, which will add to the fact it's been cheaper to run and cheaper to repair and maintain uh, for uh, five years. But so cheaper the economics to build... are working out. Oh, they're, they're brilliant. The advantage of clean energy. And they're accelerating. Right. The, the rate of progress, if anything, seems to be accelerating on the technology. However, the scale of energy sources um, is still very heavily weighted towards fossil fuels as far as where we are actually getting our energy from. And certainly if you look around the world and, you know, China is still building many, many coal-powered plants. That's a little pessimistic outlook. For example, China has canceled most of, of the uh, coal utility plants that people are quoting these days. Uh -huh. uh, right. They will simply never be built. Uh, China has opened so much more wind than anybody else that last year their wind was 75% of all the wind that the U.S. has ever done added together. Mm -hmm. They make 80% of the solar panels. They are pushing absolutely as fast as you could reasonably expect in both directions to do green and dominate, incidentally, the green industries. We'd better be right. careful. We shouldn't let them become the dominant producer of everything green. But uh, they're also cutting back as fast as could be reasonably expected, in my opinion, on, on, on fossil fuels. There's a lovely uh, series of pictures that you may have seen. It shows the Easter parade in Manhattan in 1903. And there are, I would guess, 40 wonderful carriages with women with great bonnets. And right at the back, there is one giant automobile. And then the next one is, is 1913, 10 years later. And there are 40 wonderful cars with women with bonnets. And right at the back, there is one carriage. Right. <laughs> it only took 10 years for that movement to take place. 
Do not kid yourself. When we get the bit between our teeth, we can change very fast. Just think of 1940, the number right. of destroyers and B-52s that we built, and then how many we were building in 1945. I mean, we can really move we can if do we it. have to. And we do right. have to. And the question is, will we rise to the occasion? You should never underestimate the ingenuity of Homo sapiens, is how I like to put it, and never underestimate his ability to screw it all up. You've been quoted as saying that, that we're losing the race, uh, the, the battle uh, against We haven't lost change. it, but if you look but, back at right. the seven or eight years since we wrote Race of Our Lives, Part One, I would say the weight of evidence has moved against us. Uh-huh. You don't have to go back far in American history to find a president who denied the whole concept. I mean, this is, that was pretty bad progress in eight years. Don't you feel that we've reached kind of a, a, kind of a critical mass of opinion? And certainly there's a lot of evidence of that that's coming out of not only the government, but also of corporations of a, of a recognition that we need to go clean. And, and G7. And more green. Right. The G7 statements were a very pleasant surprise, uh, getting Japan to swear off coal, etc. Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt the progress is accelerating. I think, though, if you look back at the seven year period, you'd have to say the damage, the droughts, the fires, the ocean level rise, the scientific data was more impressive than the progress. I think if you look back over the last year, however, with the rise of uh, Swedish young girls as proselytizers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and crazies in London hanging the right signs up outside the right financial enterprises, mm -hmm. that the, the world has shifted. I would say, finally, we might have won a year in the last year. But certainly, we have not lost the race, but we right. were losing it. Let's talk about uh, climate change investing. GMO launched a, the GMO Climate Change Fund in 2017, and it's actually done quite well. 18% uh, annualized returns versus 12% for its uh, benchmark. So what is climate change investing? And let me add here that I am not a leader uh, either in climate change uh, or, or um, in investing at, at GMO any longer. I am right. a kind of uh, old, uh, important fogey nagging from the wings is the best description of what I do. And do you take no credit for the launch? Was that not something that you encouraged? I, I, had been, I had been nagging on that topic for quite a few years. Let me leave it at that. Um, and uh, I, I'm thrilled that it's started, that it's doing well. And, and the, the Grantham Foundation works pretty closely uh, with Lucas White and his team who, who run the fund. Uh, right. Because what we see at the very, very early stage and what they see at the late stage is useful to both of us. And so we exchange notes on a, on a pretty regular basis. Um, what we're trying to do in Lucas White's fund is beat the market. We're trying to recognize what climate change will mean to the global economy. Everything changes if you have to decarbonize the entire world. And we would like to understand 
the advantages, the disadvantages, the opportunities, the problems, and understand it a little quicker and more completely than other people. There are some interesting moral dilemmas, too, along the way. What, for example, do you do about miners? You absolutely have to have lithium, copper, cobalt uh, right. to decarbonize the world. Without that, we would lose the battle. And there is no way you can mine those chemicals in a way that will make, make an extreme ESG guy feel happy, right? Mining is intrinsic. You can be less damaging, but it's intrinsically a, a, uh, a dirty industry. Right. And, and we have to ask the question, I think, what are the most important issues? There's a certain amount of triage. The most important issue is you've got to have enough lithium and copper and nickel and cobalt to get the job done. So put that into the portfolio, put those considerations into the portfolio and uh, apologize about the uh, non-optimality of ESG. An right. ESG portfolio could never end up with a sustainable world for lack of miners. That's interesting. All right. So you've got to be realistic in your approach as well as how, how do you get to a sustainable world and you need these dirty minerals, right? <laughs> you need some pretty dirty minerals and you can try yeah. and avoid the super dirty ones. I'm, I'm looking at, uh, at the portfolio. And again, you're not involved in managing the portfolio, but you are invested. You talk about it with the Grantham Foundation, you have uh, similar uh, interests and missions. So clean energy is 56% of the portfolio. And I was looking at you know, solar and biofuels and other clean energy uh, and wind. And I'm just thinking to myself that when I hear those industries, and tell me if I'm wrong, I'm thinking, number one, they have had government support, fairly sizable government support uh, for many, many years. And are they relatively small as far as an investment universe? The government subsidies that were absolutely vital 20 years ago uh, are no longer vital in wind and solar and storage. Although in some countries, they would still be helpful. Right. And I would recommend that they be continued for a while. But they are phasing out very, very fast and they will not be needed. We will have a plentiful supply of cheap green energy in, in 20 years. No, no question about it. Um, we need to green the grid and update it and maintain it. It's simply inefficient to the job. We're going to have to double our supply of electricity uh, in order to electrify everything that can be electrified. Electric motors are 99% efficient. A gasoline car is something like 40% efficient, depending on mm -hmm. how you measure it. And uh, in order to green the world, everything has to be electric and the electric generation has to be green. And we can do right. all of this. It will take trillions of dollars a year. And some of it will be from governments and mostly it will have to be commercial. And fortunately, um, the economics are such that it, it can be commercial and will have a high return. I would love to add a little bit about our VC portfolio at the foundation, yes. uh -huh. because uh, we have 25% uh, of all our foundation in early stage green VC, um, which we do directly with our own team. 
And I think this is the only case of having your cake and eat it that I have come across in my, in my whole career. And that is, when you invest in some of these brilliant new ideas, and Boston is a wonderful place to do it. We have right. armies of new ventures based on MIT, Harvard, and so on. When, when we do that, I believe we drive the cause for greening the world and saving the planet better uh, than most grant dollars that we make. And the money goes out, makes a profit, comes back, increases the grant, and gets redeployed in the portfolio over and over again. It is a wonderful opportunity for a philanthropic organization to use its capital. Mm -hmm. And we are trying to drive that principle forward and persuade everybody that we can. Because I think it's a candidate, Green VC, to be the highest possible return of any investment for the next 20 years because the wind is so clearly behind it. There will be carbon taxes around the world. There will be incentives. There will be masses of corporate and government money flooding behind uh, the decarbonizing. And to play into that with a brilliant new idea is running the chance of being the best of the best. This is an area that you said that the private sector commercial uh, and philanthropists can play a very important role in encouraging green venture capital, right? Absolutely. And there is, there is an element of bubble about quite a few of the areas. And, 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 and that's true, of course, in the public domain. Of course, in VC, there, you don't get the chance to buy crazies because they're all brand, brand new enterprises. Right. Is green investing a sector that's in a bubble right now? Decent chunks of it are, are looking bubbly, as are, by the way, decent chunks of almost any aspect of the market, almost right. in every asset class too, housing and real estate and forests and farmland. So it's hard to stay away completely from, from bubbles. But you also have to think of the tech bubble of 2000. Amazon declined 92%. It soared upwards in 99 to a couple of hundred. Then it collapsed 92%, and then it made everybody who owned it rich. But you can't imagine too many people were able to stand the pain of a 92% decline. The fact yeah. is that bubble, though, clearly accelerated the development of the internet world. And clearly this bubble, in terms of driving the cause for greening the planet, is hugely helpful. For the investor, tread carefully, select wisely, <laughs> but it is clearly going to help in the long run everybody to have a flood of money behind green new ventures and established green enterprises and, and ESG. Can you share a couple of the green technology uh, areas that you're most excited about or developments that you're most excited about? Well, I have to admit I am very excited about solid-state lithium-ion batteries. They're half the weight, half the volume. They charge in 10 minutes, plus or minus two. And they don't burst into flame. These, these are not inconsiderable advantages. And because they have half the resources, they will not just be lighter, but they will eventually be cheaper. So that's dramatic. And then we have an 
a small army of investments that are very close to the kind of biochemistry line where mm -hmm. you use RNA to produce insecticides that address only the Colorado potato beetle. And it is instructed to turn off its ability to digest carbohydrates. So the poor beetle gorges on, on potato and drops dead, either from constipation or starvation, we're not sure which. Right. And totally free of toxic, doesn't apply to any other insect in the animal world, which is brilliant. And also, right. bacteria that will sequester nitrogen to displace the huge carbon-intensive Haber-Bosch process that feeds half the world. Nitrogen, you can't grow food without nitrogen, and half of it is artificial. If we could displace that mechanical energy-intensive process with bacteria, uh, and it seems quite likely that we will, that will save a huge amount of energy. It would be a giant step forward. And finally, the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, which we ask at the end of every program, what would it be? If I'm allowed a broad category, green venture capital is way at the top of the list. In, in the venture capital, they can't invest in it. Um, the average listener or viewer, well, it would have to be from early stage green venture capital, uh, where it's becoming commercial and looking successful. And my choice would be, amongst many good ones, um, Greenlight, a Boston-based enterprise that has developed the, um, the treatment for Colorado beetles that looks likely to be very useful for many other insects. And also, the technology can be extended to uh, dealing with the coronavirus and, uh, and dealing with vaccines in general. What led you to start uh, an environmental foundation or, or what led you to start a, found a family foundation that was devoted to environmental causes in 1997? It would be convenient if I had a slick, honest answer. <laughs> uh, but the, the truth is, we went on a series of exotic, carbon-intensive uh, journeys to the Amazon, Africa, and the tropical forests uh, in uh, Borneo. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of those trips, without really discussing it as a family, I have to admit we all were all changed. My son came out of Brown and got a job uh, doing tropical forestry. A second son went to take forestry uh, at university. And, and, and our daughter uh, took her first job out of college working for the Massachusetts uh, League of Environmentalism and, uh, and so on. And, and so from that day onward, we all seemed to think that the environment was the issue. And as we right. focused on the environment and decided we would no longer give money towards alma maters and so on, we realized that the field of environmentalism was dominated by climate change. And that if we didn't fix climate change, all the other protective features would go for nothing. You could spend billions protecting coral reefs, but if you don't stop climate change, all coral reefs will fail, and so on. 
And so it tightened the focus over a number of years until very quickly, about three years in, the protection of the environment had really become climate change. And 12 years ago, uh, we, we started an institute for climate change research at Imperial College London and the London School of Economics on, on the economic front. Jeremy Grantham, once again, thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track. It's been a pleasure, really. Thank you. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point follows Jeremy Grantham's lead. It is put your money where your mouth is. There are more opportunities to invest in what you believe in than ever before. There are numerous top quality companies providing essential products and services. There are hundreds of thematic ETFs and mutual funds available. You don't have to be as successful as Jeremy Grantham is to benefit from investing in companies and funds that reflect your values and causes. And if he is any indication, you can derive a great deal of satisfaction from doing it. Next week, award-winning historian and best-selling author Neil Ferguson explains how understanding history can make you a better investor. In the meantime, in this week's extra feature, Grantham discusses his early pioneering adoption of index investing and its advantages and disadvantages. For those of you so inclined, we encourage you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for spending time with us today. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.